this week, as we look at Psalm 89, uh, we're calling it Collide with Covenant. Collide with Covenant. I know covenant's not a word we use very often in our society, but it's a very important Bible word. Um, And basically, a, a short summary of covenant is a promise or a contract between two parties that's made formal, that's made formal with some sort of ceremony often. So that's really what covenant means. And in the Bible, it often has this heavy Godward weight to it, right? That God brings his strength to the covenant. And so we often, when we're speaking in biblical terms, we think of covenant as this gracious, one-sided sort of contract where God is the one that's really doing the heavy lifting. And we see that worked, worked out in all the different covenants throughout Scripture. Um, we've talked before that in the Psalms, they're, they're roughly broken into five sections. Do you all remember that? Those of you that have been here before, talked about they're roughly five sections that somewhat coincide with the idea of the five books of Moses. And so the book of Psalms is, uh, is kind of structured in a similar way. We're ending the middle section right now. We're ending book three or section three. And I've told you before that this is kind of like the part in the story, the middle part of a trilogy, right? Like the Empire Strikes Back or, or throw in whatever story you like, where it looks like the bad guys are winning in the middle of the story, right? That's where we are in the book of Psalms. So a lot of the Psalms have been about the exile, right? For those of you that don't know, Israel was disobedient. They dishonored God and God said, okay, I'm going to punish you and Babylon's going to crush you and you're going to be scattered. And that's the point of the story that we find ourselves in here. And so Psalm 89 is, is finishing this section. Next week we'll begin section four of the Psalms with Psalm 90. Psalm 89 is wrapping up this, it looks like the bad guys are winning section of the Psalms. It has to do with the exile, the punishment of Israel. God made a promise to Israel I'm going to save the world through you, Israel. And then right now, they're broken and scattered and completely fallen apart. And so there's this tension in Psalm 89 that we'll see of, God, if you're going to save the world through us, how's that going to work out? Because we've been utterly destroyed. How are you going to do that? So Psalm 89 is really long. So what we're going to do is we're going to read just a few verses at the beginning, a few verses at the end. And then as we work through it today, we'll we'll get through all the verses. but I'm just assuming you have a short attention span like me, and it would be hard to, to follow all of them at once. So starting in verse 1, uh, or even before that, it says a maskil of Ethan, the Ezraite. Most uh, commentators would, would again use that as a way to place it during the exile period. And then he says in verse 1, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So that establishes the theme. It's about the covenant, the promise that God made with David, the king of Israel, that you're going to have a descendant that will be king of the world, that will save everyone. This, this everything that's wrong in the world, I'm going to fix it through Israel. Specifically, I'm going to fix it through the line of David, through your kingdom. You're going to have a forever dynasty, a forever kingdom. So then let's skip to the end of Psalm 89, starting in verse uh, 48. Psalm 89, 48. Now we get the tension where, where they're living now, the reality. It says, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? That's the place of the dead. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? which by your faithfulness you swore to David. So at the beginning, he promised his love to David. Now he's saying, where is it? 
Where is this love that you've promised to King David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Remember that word anointed is the same word Messiah, which in Greek is Christ, your chosen one, the special one you're going to lead with and rule with. He's saying it's being mocked. And then he ends with verse 52, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Let me pray for us and uh, ask God to teach us. God, we, we ask for your help this morning. Um, we have a lot of material to cover. And God, we also have a, a heart posture that sometimes makes it hard for us to hear what you have to say. And so we offer ourselves to you and ask that you would teach us, that you would help us to not be distracted by all the things we're worried about, by all the things that are causing us physical pain and emotional pain right now, that you would just allow us to hear you, to hear what you're saying, uh, that you would teach us, that you would show us your faithfulness and your steadfast love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a little over 20 years ago, I was involved in a covenant, right? I was involved in a public covenant before my friends and family, before the community. Hundreds of people were there. Uh, My wife and I made covenant promises with each other to love each other for a lifetime. And the way we structured our covenant is we structured it where uh, as long as one of us never got mad or upset at the other one, we would fulfill the covenant. That was the promise that we made. Is that the way you made your promise? No? Um, I'm kidding, right? Uh, In marriage, it's one of the few places where we see this kind of unconditional promise-making that is a biblical covenant. It's one of the few places in our society where we even use the word covenant. Just a short survey, how many of you uh, use the word covenant in your everyday life? Raise your hand if you use that word very often. Not much. Yeah, it's not really a common word in our society. We've got somebody in the back there. Um, uh, What about the word contract? You use that word sometimes? Contract, that's a little closer to what it means. Except contract, I think, in our consumer society has this very kind of throwaway connotation to it, right? And so covenant, we like to hold on to the term, even though it's not a term we use very often, we like to hold on to the term because it's got a gravity to it that's more reflective of who God is and the kind of gracious promises he makes to us. And ideally, in a marriage, we're making that same kind of gracious promise. We, we asked our best friend to sing a song um, that was popular at the time. You, you may not know it because some of you weren't born 21 years ago, but... Um, this is, I'm going to not sing, but say some of the song here. Uh, the wind is growing colder and the sky is growing dark, though it's something neither of us understands. We can walk through this together if we hold each other's hand. I said, for better or for worse, I'd be with you. So no matter where you're going, I will go there too. I know sometimes I let you down, but I won't let you go. We'll always be together. And one of the refrains of the song is, I will go there with you. When, when we're making those promises, we knew, even as little kids, basically, when we got married, we, we knew that we didn't know everything we would face in life, right? Most of us are smart enough to know that when you get married, that you know you don't know what you're going to run into. You know that life is going to be harder than you expected. You know that you're going to run into darkness and pain and difficulty that you, you never quite imagined. And now, you know, 20 and a half years later, we would say, yeah, we... We didn't know life would be this hard. We didn't know we'd go through all the stuff we've gone through. We didn't know we'd 
we'd hurt each other the way that we've hurt each other. We didn't know that we'd be hurt from the outside the ways that we've been hurt. But the promise remains that we'll go through that together. That we'll go through that together. And maturity in marriage, this is just my pastoral aside about marriage, and we'll, we'll get away from marriage now. But my, my encouragement for you in marriage is that real love in marriage is not that the other one always lives up to their side of the bargain. It's that you live up to your side of the bargain. That, that's really what marriage is about. Because in the human world that we live in, both of us are going to fail. All of us are going to fail. And so we're called on to reflect the gracious covenantal faithfulness of God who says, I'll be faithful and I will go through that with you no matter what you do. So I just want you to hear that about marriage. And then now we're going we're gonna to look at what does that look like in the broader sense of God's covenant with his people, God's covenant with the world, God's specific covenant through David. One of the uh, symbols used again and again in the scripture for covenant is marriage. That God is that faithful husband that none of us can quite live up to. He's the one that is that faithful. He's the one that's perfect. He's the rescuing one. He's the one that's always there and that will always be there for us. That's the picture that we see again and again in scripture. Um, In this passage, the first thing that we see then is that God is the engine of the covenant. Uh, Even if you're like me, I'm not really much of a mechanic, but I understand that the tires are not what make the car go, right? Do y'all get that? Some of you, you have like a basic knowledge of how a vehicle works. It's the engine that drives it. It's the, the power of the vehicle. I remember one of my kids, one time I was at a stoplight and I kind of had my hands down off the wheel and I accelerated without having my hands on the steering wheel. And my kid was like, Daddy, how'd you make the car go without turning the wheel? Because they thought that's what made the car go, right? Because when you play car, you're like, you know, like, no, honey, it's actually there's a gas pedal and there's an engine, you know, and I was like, never mind. It's okay. I don't really understand it either. But um, in this in this psalm, we see that that God, his character, his faithfulness, his steadfast love is the engine of the covenant. That's the engine of the covenant. That's what makes this whole thing work. That's what makes the promise a keepable, a keepable promise. Is that even a word? That's what that's who keeps the promise. He's the one that drives this car. So let's look at it. Starting in verse 1, we're going to read this first section, 1 through 18. And we'll see again and again the steadfast love of God. We've talked about this word before, chesed. It's sometimes translated tender mercies or faithful love. Steadfast love of God and the faithfulness of God. These, These two words will come up again and again throughout this psalm to remind us of how God keeps the covenant. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. So in this section, he's comparing him to the heavenly hosts or to the counsel of the holy ones. He's talking about angelic beings, angels, supernatural beings in heaven. And he's saying, they don't even compare to you. So supernatural beings that none of us have probably seen that are awesome and terrifying, that when they appear to people, people fall down on the ground and are terrified. 
saying, they don't even compare to you, God. You are the mighty one. And this is reflective of the language in Hebrews chapter 1 and 2 that says that Jesus is not even to be compared to those heavenly beings. He's got the name above all names. And so he's praising God as the powerful one, as, as the one capable of having steadfast love, as the one capable of being faithful. We're not always faithful. We don't always keep steadfast love, but he does. He's the engine of the covenant. Look at verse 8. It says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Can you think of someone that fits that description? Who stills the raging seas? The answer is Jesus. It's Jesus. Verse 10 says, You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies like your mighty arm. Rahab is another name for Egypt. We saw a couple of weeks ago, um, Leviathan, the sea monster, is also a symbol for Egypt. And remember the great uh, symbol of God's salvation from the Old Testament or reality of God's salvation in the Old Testament is the Exodus, where God saved his people out of slavery and he crushed Egypt, the world empire of the time. And so this is another reference to that. You crushed Rahab. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Verse 11, the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. Those are great mountains in Israel. So they're saying you go outside and you see the beauty of the mountains and the trees and the hills and the sunset. And, and when we're in proper disposition before God, when we're in proper posture before God, we praise God when we see creation. When we don't, Romans 1 says that's us suppressing reality. That's us saying, God, I hate you. I'm not going to pay attention to what you've done. But when we're in proper posture with God, when we look at the creation and we praise him, we're like, God, you're amazing. Look at what you've made. Look at what you've done. You are faithful. You are steadfast in your love. And so he's praising him with the mountains. Verse 13, you have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. Festal shout, another phrase y'all use a lot in your everyday language, right? Festal shout, everybody, come on. Um, I, I think what that would, the way to describe that would be like the shout of the festival, right? In our context, like the shout, the, the scream of praise in congregational worship, the, the shouting of Christmas songs at Christmas or Easter time or whatever festivals where we celebrate God's goodness. That's what they're referencing here. That kind of festival party atmosphere of God, you're good. God, you're great. Shouting out to him. These people who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. Verse 16 says, uh, continues about them who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. Uh, people don't have horns generally, right? But this is a, a biblical symbol of strength, right? So think uh, our sword is exalted or our uh, Fort Hood reference, our artillery is exalted, right? Or our tanks are exalted. It would be that kind of phrase in uh, ancient Near Eastern literature. A horn would be like a symbol of strength. So it'd be like your sword is exalted, your strength is exalted. Verse 18 kind of reinforces it. For our shield belongs to the Lord. Our king to the Holy One of Israel. And so through this section, he's talking about, God, you are our strength. 
God, you are the faithful one. You are the one with steadfast love. You're the engine of this covenant. It's all relying on you. You're where the strength comes from. And so I wanted to show you the world's most powerful engine, right? Uh, Those of you that are mechanics might be impressed with this. This is the world's most powerful engine. Now, I said before, I I don't know a whole lot about engines, but I know like in in my little car, you know, the engine block's about this big, right? The cylinders aren't very big. Um, If you drive a big truck, maybe it's like this with bigger cylinders. Look, Look at this one. I don't know if you can tell, but that's a dude standing over one of the cranks there. So that engine block is, is like the size of this room, basically. It's not like this, but like this, right? This is a, a huge diesel engine that drives a super tanker. And I wanted to just give you a feel for that kind of weight where, where we have these engines in our everyday life that are little and you know, fit in the front of our cars. This is the kind of engine that would drive a super tanker. And what the scripture is saying here in Psalm 89 is that God is ultimate power, right? He is inexhaustible power. This is just like a little glimpse of the kind of power that God has. In the Psalms, it jumps from our human understanding of power to the greatness of the God over all creation. And that's what I'm trying to paint here is uh, we know little engines. This is a big engine. God is way beyond anything we can imagine. He's the real engine behind all faithfulness in this world. God invented faithfulness. Faithfulness was his idea. When we're faithful by accident, it's because of God's grace in our life. He's really the faithful one. He is the steadfast one. He's the one that shows us how to love. And so I think this is a good recalibration at the beginning of the psalm, and we'll get into some other uh, points as we move through. But I just want to pause here and recognize, you know, just like your GPS says, recalibrating when you get lost. Have you ever heard that annoying voice when it does that? Um, This is a redirect. This is the beginning of the psalm, getting our hearts right and saying, okay, we got to recalibrate because we can often drift to focus on our response to the covenant on our side of the covenant. The covenant is two-sided. The covenant is an agreement between two parties. That's what a covenant is. But throughout Scripture, we're reminded again and again that the covenant really is all about God. The covenant's really all about His power and His strength and His steadfast love and His faithfulness. And so our response to that covenant should be a response to how great He is. And so how I think this translates into our daily life here 21st century in America is we're a part of a tribe that's often called evangelicalism. That's a brand of Christianity that says we're sinners that believe we need a savior and we think God has spoken to us through his word. That's a a gross oversimplification, but that's basically what an evangelical is. An evangelical is someone that believes they need the gospel. That's evangelical is a Greek word for gospel. So an evangelical is someone that says, I need the gospel. I need God's good news to save me because I'm a sinner. I need salvation. And I believe that this is God's word. But as a part of our history as evangelicals, we, we have this, uh, this culture mixed in that's sometimes referred to as revivalism. Um, revival in a positive sense means that we call on God to revive us, to give us new life. That's a good thing. But revivalism is an emphasis on that and sometimes a, a mechanical way where we say we can, we can force new spiritual life. We can bring in the right speaker and just kind of perk everybody up, right? Uh, sometimes associated with emotionalism, right? We don't really love God, but we can just kind of make ourselves love God. We can just force it and push it and and make it happen. Uh, Another term for this is sometimes decisionalism. And so that's a focus on the decision that we make to follow God. I I just want to pause here and say, I hope that everyone here has made a decision to entrust yourself to the God of the universe who is gracious, 
who, even though we deserve judgment, has said, I've, I've placed judgment on my son Jesus on the cross. I punished him for your sins, and I want to freely give you his righteousness. I hope you've all made a decision personally to trust him for that salvation. And so I hope that's happened. And if you haven't, I'd love to talk to you more about what that looks like. How to respond in faith to this covenant that God wants to make with you. But I also just want to warn you against what can happen in this culture of decisionalism where you begin to emphasize your decision. What can happen is you begin to put faith in your faith. And that's what I want to warn us against. Our faith should always be in what Jesus did on the cross. Our faith shouldn't be in our response to what Jesus did on the cross. Do you see the difference? So I, I learned this through experience as I was a children's pastor and a youth pastor, and I used to uh, interview people before they wanted to get baptized. Um, baptism is a public way of, of making formal our covenant with God. Baptism is the way we respond publicly in this covenant. Say, I accept the washing and the death and rebirth that Jesus offers to me. We'll, we'll offer one of these in a few weeks. We're going to have a parking lot party and a picnic after Easter, and if you want to get baptized, talk to us, and we'll set that up for for that time. Uh, but what can happen is when people are wanting to follow God, sometimes what would happen when I would interview these kids is I would ask them about their faith in Christ, and they wouldn't really talk about what Christ had done for them. They would say, well, my parents said that I made a decision when I was five. Well, I don't really remember it. I don't really have any active faith, living faith today, but my parents told me I made a decision. And so what I want you to understand is that that's not, a, that's not faith, that's faith and your parents telling you you had faith once. Do you see the difference? So I just want to warn us against that, that in a culture of emphasizing the decision we really do have to make to entrust ourselves to Christ, we don't want to make our whole faith resting in that prayer, resting in that, trans, that transaction, that moment of faith. We should look back on what Jesus did on the cross more than how we responded. Now, in our family, we took pictures at the baptism. We think the response is important, right? When our kids were baptized, we took pictures, we celebrated it. Uh, we even remember the day that they first prayed to receive Christ into their life. We celebrate those dates. We, we celebrate the response. But what we talk about every day is not that response. What we talk about every day is what God did. Because he's the engine of the covenant. He's the one that drives our salvation. He's the one that accomplished it for us on the cross. So going back to the words of the text, it's his steadfast love. It's his faithfulness that saves us. It's not our faithfulness. It's not our steadfast love. We are responders to the covenant that he wants to make with us. So the next thing that we see as we move through the text is the particulars of this covenant then. We've been talking in generalities about God being the one that drives this covenant and him being the faithful one and we're just responders to his faithfulness. But here we pick up with the particulars of this covenant that God made a certain covenant with David, right? So there are covenants throughout Scripture, throughout the, the history of the Bible. Um, many theologians would say there was a covenant with Adam and Eve, even though that word doesn't show up. They, they had kind of an agreement, right, in the garden. Um, and then all these other covenants where it's much more clear, where the word covenant shows up, there was a covenant made with Noah, and that word shows up there. There was a covenant made with Abraham, and that word is there. There's a covenant made with uh, Moses and the people of God when God rescued them out of the Exodus. And then there's a covenant made with David, and then the New Testament... We understand Jesus to be the one that fulfills the new covenant that's the fulfillment of all of these biblical covenants. And so here we're talking about the covenant with David. God is the one that comes to David and says, you're going to have descendants that will reign forever. I'm going to save the world through 
uh, a son of Eve. He said to Adam and Eve, I'm going to save the world through descendants of Noah. He said to Noah, I'm going to save the world through descendants of Abraham. He said to Abraham, right? It gets, gets more and more narrowed throughout Scripture. And finally with David, he says, it's, it's going to be a king that's going to be one of your descendants. That's how narrow now the covenant has become. You're going to have a dynasty that rules forever. So let's look at the facts, the particulars of this covenant, starting in verse 19. Are we on time? Eh, we're doing okay. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I've granted help to one who is mighty. I've exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hands shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God and the rock of my salvation. Can I remember someone else that always referred to God as his father? Jesus, it's Jesus again. Okay, That's an easy answer, guys. If I am not going to ask a question, Jesus is a good answer. So, Verse 27 says, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This is important here because uh, uh, Mormons, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses will say that New Testament language about Jesus being firstborn means he was uh, made. And we as uh, Orthodox historic Christians would say, no, Jesus wasn't made. Jesus is God. He's a part of the Trinity. Uh, and so this phrase is important here because it's saying that um, God is setting up David and his descendants as firstborn. You see that it's a position of firstness. It's a position of being chief. And so when Colossians talks about Jesus as firstborn over all creation, it's saying he's king. He's Lord of lords and king of kings. It's not saying uh, that God made Jesus as the first made thing, okay? And so that's an important just little theological note to understand that firstborn is, is his status. This is a status that this descendant of David would have, and that descendant is Jesus. And then he goes on and he says, verse 28, my steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I want you to hear that. This unconditional covenant, this gracious love that God makes, he says, part of the deal is I'll, I'll discipline you if you stray. I'll discipline you if you stray. That doesn't mean I don't love you. That means I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to straighten things out. So if you strayed from God and if you're facing difficulty, God, God will work it out with you. He's faithful. That doesn't mean he's removing his faithfulness from us. He's going to continue to walk through it with us. And we see that clearly here in his promise made to David, but that's the kind of promises he made throughout Scripture, throughout the covenants of the Bible. Verse 33, I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. Verse 34, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. And so he's 
being clear here, his, his love will not depart even though it will look like it. Even though discipline may come, chastisement may come, there, there might come a, a whooping, to use Central Texas terminology, right? There, there might be some difficulties that are come. It's going to get rough. It's going to be messy. One of the things that's important to remember is if you've actually read the Old Testament, you recognize that, that David wasn't just perfect and awesome all the time, right? King David was a flawed, seriously flawed man. If you're not familiar with the scriptures, if you, if you, didn't, if you haven't really studied the scriptures for yourself, often uh, you can fall under this magic spell of bad Sunday school teachers. And, and what happens often is our, our bad Sunday school teachers as kids said things like, um, Abraham was good, so be good like Abraham. David was good, so be good like David. But, but then you go and read the Old Testament. And you're like, you really shouldn't be like Abraham and David, okay? Do not imitate them. They, they did bad stuff. What the scripture tells us to imitate was their faith their faith, their repentance, their turning from self and trusting in God alone because they knew they, they couldn't do it. They needed God to fulfill the covenant for them. They needed God to be faithful because they couldn't be faithful. That's what we're supposed to imitate when we look at characters like Abraham and Moses and David, that God is faithful and they're trusting in him. I wanted to compare just as an image for you two different famous statues of, of King David as we think through the particulars of God using flawed men to fulfill his purposes. He uses flawed people like you and like me. So let's look at these two different statues. A little study in art history here for you. Um, on the left is Michelangelo's David. It's a famous statue. Any of you seen Michelangelo's David before? Some of you? Okay. Not really many art buffs here. Okay. And then the one on the right is Berlini's. They, they occurred about 100 years apart. Um, Michelangelo's more what we call Renaissance. Berlini's is more what we call Baroque. Um, I just want to use them as an illustration. Not an art expert, but I think they illustrate a difference in how we can view Bible heroes. And that can translate into how we view our own responsibility in life. Uh, David on the left by Michelangelo is kind of stoic. He's ready to fight. He's got his sling. He's ready to fight Goliath. But he's kind of off to the side. And he's more in the Greek classical idealistic uh, concept of the perfect human form. He's supposed to kind of look like a god, right? He's kind of supposed to look perfect and impeccable. And then Berlini's on the right is a little more real life. He's in action, right? He's moving. He doesn't have this placid, removed look on his face, but he's grunting. He has kind of an ugly look on his face. He's swinging. He's fighting. He's in the thick of it. And I want you to think about that as two different ways to understand God working through Bible heroes. I'm going to remove it now because he's naked. Sorry about that. But... I think sometimes we think of being a man of faith as being like this placid standing off to the side. I look perfect, but I'm not really doing anything, right? Like that, that can be a dangerous understanding of a Bible hero, which can translate into a dangerous understanding of our own life of faith. When I think Berlini is a better illustration of he's in the thick of it. He's fighting it, and I like that he has clothes on too, but he's like, he's in action, right? He's, he's doing something. He's fighting. He's grimacing. And I think that's a much better picture of what faith looks like. Faith is not being placid and beautiful and sitting on the sidelines. Faith is the messiness of, of real life, of trusting God in, in real life. I'm not saying God wants us to sin and mess up. I'm saying God wants us to try. And will we falter and fail? Yes, we'll, we'll fall. And then we replace our trust in the God of the universe, who is the faithful one. Even when we've been faithless, he's faithful. That's, that's what the scripture is telling us. God comes in and he uses 
broken people like David and Abraham and Moses and like you and me. He wants to use people like you and me in this world to glorify his steadfast love and his faithfulness. So does he want us to be faithful? Yes, he wants us to be faithful. We're faithful, though, in response to his faithfulness. We love because he first loved us. We're faithful because he was faithful to us, too. He's the one that drives this. And so the particulars of how it works out in everyday life is we're responders to what God has done for us, understanding that he's the one that took the lead. He's the one that showed his goodness to us in this story that we call the gospel, the good news of a God who's saving the world through his son Jesus and invites us in to the adventure of what he's doing here and now. Even though it's messy, even though it's painful, even though it's hard for us day to day, he doesn't want us just sitting on the sideline looking pretty. He wants us fighting. He wants us in the middle of the fight. The last thing that we see is the doubt of the covenant. It it looks like God's not really doing it. It looks like maybe he's forgotten what he promised. If you look at verse 38, but now you've cast off and rejected. You're full of wrath against your anointed. Again, remember the word anointed uh, means Messiah or Christ, the one that God's chosen for his purposes. You're full of wrath against your anointed. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. You've breached all his walls. You've laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He's become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You've made all his enemies rejoice. You've also turned back the edge of his sword, and you've not made him stand in battle. You've made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You've cut short the days of his youth. You've covered him with shame. How long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Here we have the complaint, the doubt, the wonder. Like, God, how are you going to save the world? If you promised to save your world through the descendants of David, how are you going to do that now that you've scattered the descendants of David? Now that you've wrecked Israel. Now that Israel's been scattered and everything's been destroyed and the kingdom has been crushed. Again, you can read the particulars of that in the the history of God's Old Testament people, but we've all lived through that feeling. We've all felt that prayer. We all know what that feels like to think, God, you... You promised you're going to do great things through me. You, you promised that you're going to save me. I don't, I don't feel saved right now, God. Like when everything's falling apart, I, I don't feel like you're saving me. How are you going to do this, God? That angst that Paul talks about in Romans 8, where he says we're struggling and that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, but sometimes we, we feel like we're being separated from the love of Christ. And that's what the psalmist is reflecting. That same feeling that we feel of God, it doesn't look like you're saving the world. It doesn't look like you're saving me. It doesn't look like you're fulfilling the promises that you made. He talks about the crushed crown. Verse 39, you've renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. Found a picture of a, of a king, a crown that we found from around 200 BC. It was found in England. I found this on the archaeology website. Uh, so here's a skeleton. You can just kind of see the, the crown there, 
how it's all corroded, it's crushed, it's hard to even make it out. If you're sitting in the back of the room, you probably can't tell, it just looks like a blur, uh, but there's this corroded bronze crown on his head and a crushed skull. And that's the reality of what the psalmist is saying. This, this seems to be what you're doing in the world, God. The king's not saving anybody. The hope is all gone. What was really weird is as I was reading on this archaeology website, they, they decided to restore the crown of, of this skull that they found. They restored it. I'm going to show you a picture here. This is the restored crown. They're like, it's still a creepy skeleton. You know, like, <laughs> that's great. You restored it, but it still looks kind of horrible. I mean... Um, it's slightly more shiny now, and they set it up, and it's still a creepy dead skeleton and a crushed crown. But that's kind of where we live. That's kind of where we live. We, we take maybe one step forward, but we still feel like, God, what are you doing? How, how is the world being saved right now? It doesn't feel like it's being saved. It feels like the bad guys are winning. It feels like the tide has turned against us. And I want to encourage you that when we see that, again, now we get to cheat and point forward to the end of the story in the New Testament where we see that God has fulfilled these promises through Jesus. The beginning of the gospel stories that say he was born in the line of David. We get two different genealogies, born in the line of David through Mary and born in the line of David through Joseph both. He, he is of that descent. He's a part of that dynasty. Peter in Acts chapter 2 says he is the fulfillment of these promises made to David. He is ruling from his throne in heaven with God right now. God raised him from the dead and exalted him above every name. In Acts chapter 15, James says that Jesus is the fulfillment of a prophecy that Amos made that someday God would rebuild this house. So the prophecy referenced, the covenant referenced here in Psalm 89 that says that there would be this forever house, this forever dynasty through David's line. And that was also talked about in 2 Samuel 7. The covenant's made there in 2 Samuel 7. Well, in Amos, he makes prophecies about it and says, someday God will rebuild this house. This dynasty will be rebuilt and all the nations will come into this house. And James says, that's what's happening through the gospel. That's what's happening through the gospel. God is saving the whole world through Jesus. And so we see the fulfillment here and now. Now, I just want to make a little aside, and I know I went over, but um, y'all love like complicated theology. Don't you want to hear a little more? Okay. Um, there, there's kind of two schools of, of theology in the evangelical world. One is called dispensationalism and one is called covenant theology. And I'm not going to go into a whole lot of details about it because I know most of you don't care. But if you want to hear more about it, please uh, buy me some coffee and take me out to lunch because I've read thousands of pages on this and I'd love to talk to people about it more. Um, but there's kind of two schools of thought. Dispensationalism emphasizes that there are things we're still looking forward to that haven't been fulfilled yet. Right? Like, um, there are still kind of earthly, Israel-centered promises we look forward to. Some, some future hope of God doing some stuff through Israel. Dispensationalism emphasizes that. And then covenant theology emphasizes that Jesus is the fulfillment of all prophecy. And so he fulfills it now. He is reigning from heaven as David's descendant, as the king. The king of kings and lord of lords. Sound familiar? New Testament language. He is the king already. And so there's a tension there, and we're, we're kind of a part of uh, our church having a foot in both worlds. We, we kind of see some on, on both sides of that. So that's sometimes referred to as progressive dispensationalism or covenantal premillennialism. So there are your big words. I'm done with the big words. Um, but it's the idea that we want to hold on to, yeah, there seems like some black and white. This hasn't happened yet. We're still looking forward to more to come. And there also seems like some really beautiful ways that Jesus has already fulfilled every 
promise that we look forward to. And he is reigning and he did rise from the dead. And so there's a tension of holding those two things together. Is the promise fulfilled? Yes. Is there more to come? Yes. And that's the tension that we live in in the here and now. And so just by way of application, I would say take, take some wisdom from both schools of thought theologically, from the school of thought that just says, I call it like I see it. The Bible says this. I expect it to be fulfilled simply and in a black and white way. That, that's kind of the heritage of dispensationalism. And then the heritage of covenant theology is uh, there's a lot of nuance there. And we should let Scripture interpret Scripture. We should see how the apostles interpreted Scripture. We should see how Jesus interpreted the Scriptures. And in Luke 24, Jesus said that he is a fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. And he was fulfilling it then. He's fulfilling it now. So holding those two things in tension as we read the Scripture. That, yeah, I should just take it at its first reading and obey whatever it tells me to do. And I should also be a student that studies and seeks to understand the nuance and the genre, and how Scripture speaks about itself. So we kind of got to hold those two things in Scripture as we study, uh, hold those two things in tension as we study the Scripture together. I just want to close by looking at Philippians 2. You don't have to flip there, but I'll kind of recite, retell it for you. Uh, Philippians 2, Paul reminds the Philippian church that their faithfulness is based on the faithfulness of Jesus. That because Jesus fulfilled the covenant for us, that we can fulfill the covenant that we've made with him. And it talks about this Jesus who, even though he was equal with God, even though he was God, he left heaven and came to earth and was crushed for us. Just like the picture of the king's crown being crushed in the dirt, we know that's the story. That Jesus was crushed for us. He took our place. And he underwent that destruction. He died in our place. He took the death that we deserved to die and he gives us the righteousness that we don't deserve, the free gift of his life. And so then Paul goes on to say, and so now he's been exalted above every name. Just like Psalm 89 says, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, is exalted above every other and that he would raise up an anointed one, a Messiah that would be exalted above every other one. In Philippians 2, it says, Jesus is that one. God has kept the covenant. Even though we've been faithless, he's been faithful. And he's kept the covenant for us. He's the faithful one. And now Jesus is exalted above every knee, uh, above every name. And someday every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He is the King of Kings. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you have been faithful even when we have not. Thank you that you fulfilled the covenant that we couldn't fulfill. Thank you that you are bringing the happy ending even as we struggle day to day with death and brokenness. Help us to trust. Help us to remember that the suffering we endure now cannot be compared with the coming glory. We thank you for King Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.